Sean Atwood in Crime Stack on Salvatore Sammy the Bull Gravano. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Here's a word from a sponsor, Atlas VPN. Atlas VPN has got the best VPN deal in the market. Enjoy the most affordable online protection for just $1.70 per month, plus six months extra with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Unlock your favorite content from all over the world. Can't access Friends or other legendary shows on your Netflix while being abroad? That's not a problem anymore. Atlas VPN got you covered. Check out the Savile stuff on Netflix. Keep your Google searches in private looking for something on Google. With Atlas VPN, you can search the web with real and organic search results and do it without tracking your activity. Sick of the ads and malware? This is more than just a VPN. It blocks all the malicious links, ads and trackers and notifies you when someone is trying to steal your data. Get away, hackers. Save some coins while shopping online. Get the best deals while shopping online, including online subscriptions. Netflix, Spotify, airlines, hotels, and much more. And protect unlimited devices. Atlas VPN protects all your devices with just a single subscription. Link is in the description box if you're watching this on YouTube. Enjoy the Christmas discount now because Atlas VPN Premium is just $1.70 per month plus six months extra with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your privacy and get many benefits of Atlas VPN for the ridiculously low price. You can take this deal by clicking the link in the description box below. Be quick. It is a limited-time offer. Thanks for watching. Back to the podcast. You saw Louie like... <laughs> smirking across the table with his big cigar sammy just saw him and he got madder and madder he's like yeah i did do that and i did it because this sea sucker ripped me off paul give me permission and i'll whack him out right here and now and, and sammy said that paul castellano like went white you know this white collar racketeer went white with the idea that there could be a hit right here now in front of him Neil Delacroix, the hard-boiled, like Capone-era underboss, tough guy, street guy, work guy, he bellows. This guy here, meaning Sammy, is designing his own death. Here we are. I urge people to check out his YouTube channel. He's got mafia stuff, Sammy the Bull. Many of you are familiar with that for my story. We're going to get to that. And on his about, it says, insightful and thoroughly researched reviews, interviews, and discussions about a wide range of fascinating topics, including crime, tech, art, film, books, and much more. And he's with us from LA right now in the middle of the night. So huge thank you to Billy for coming on. What got you on this mission first, Billy? Well, in terms of the mafia, that's one of my, my specialties. I'm a crime historian here in L.A. and writer. But the mafia itself, I've been into since I was a kid. Since I was a kid, I was really into Greek mythology and Cosa Nostra. I don't know why. Maybe because it's a modern criminal mythology. <laughs> it's absolutely riveting, though, isn't it? I mean, if you grow up as a young person and you're watching The Sopranos or one of these old-school movies, Godfellas, Casino... It's absolutely mesmerizing, isn't it? Especially for young males. The Godfather. I remember sitting watching The Godfather with my dad mesmerized. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting that like life imitating art, art imitating life, a lot of these guys. Today, we're going to talk about Sammy the Bull Gravano and some really interesting stories with him coming up. When Sammy, he had mentioned when he saw The Godfather, those guys all, they walked out of that theater walking on air. It's, it's <laughs> really, they're really into it. So life kind of imitated art. Why in particular did you focus on Sammy then? I've had an interest in Sammy's story for many years. 
I'm from back east originally. I'm, I'm in Los Angeles now, but I used to go in and I was interviewing made guys and Sammy was on my radar a long time ago. He's a really big time guy. What he did is very legitimate. He's a He's a real one, you know? I mean, he was a real one. I mean, now he cooperated and he did what he did, but back in the day, he attained the highest echelon. Let's go through his life there, chronological order. And he grew up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Bensonhurst, Brooklyn in the 1960s. When Sammy was growing up, the Cosa Nostra family that held the most sway in Bensonhurst was the Profaci family, which later became the Colombo family. Sammy Gravano is 100% Sicilian on both his mother and father's side. His father came over on a steamer, jumped ship in Canada, and made his way down to New York. And his parents were legitimate people. His dad owned a dress factory, and they were kind of nice, legitimate people. Sammy talks about back then how he saw the mafia around, and he'd say, they'd all say, the, the mafia dons would say, hey, Sammy, when he'd walk by, and he'd be like, dad, who's that? And he's like, you know, those are bad people. They don't work hard and do things like us, but there are bad people. And then there was one incident where Sammy's dad was shaken down by some Irish mobsters, and he went to one of these guys in the mafia to kind of get him bailed out. Sammy was dyslexic when he was a child, heavily dyslexic. In school early on, he was thought of as being learning disabled or probably back then the less palatable word retarded. And he was held back several grades and that, you know, deeply affected him. So I feel like that, I mean, Sammy's also, he's five foot five, you know, he's a, five, he's a tough guy, five, five. But I feel like that that dyslexia created something of an infirmity complex in him, which probably later in life allowed him to rise to these high levels that he did. He's part of a gang called the Rampers because I read about that in Underboss. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Rampers was uh, one of numerous youth gangs that were kind of like the minor league for Cosa Nostra. A lot of a lot of the guys from the Rampers went on to be in various families from the Colombos to the Gambinos to the Genovese family to the De Cavacante family in Jersey. They're very, like, very, very tough street gang and it wasn't like you know uh west side story with the jets and uh dancing around it was guns and you know clipping people and serious stuff how heavy was the violence sammy was involved in when he was in the rampers of course gangs like that back in that era you think of as fist fighting and punching people in the face and stomping people but there was also they were heavy they were they were all packing guns and they shot people. They killed people. Not as much as later. I mean, because these are teenage kids at the time, but pretty, pretty heavy duty, you know, more than my high school at the time. What was his earliest running with the law? As a teenager, Sammy's first arrest was for beating up a New York City cop. His lawyer got him off with a small fine. In terms of the rampers, he did some pretty bad stuff. You know, you have to, as you know, the wise guys would explain to him, you can't do this forever. You've got to get associated with a, with a real gang the Cosa Nostra because that was who held sway. Did he get in so much trouble he ended up getting sent off to the military or something like that? He got in trouble and the lawyer told the judge, this is during like the Vietnam era, this is a little bit later, and he, the lawyer told the judge he's going into the army. And then Sammy came out and said, well, I guess I have to go into the army. And the lawyer was like, no, 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 that's BS. You don't have to go to the army. We just told them that. However, shortly after that, he got drafted into the army. This is during the Vietnam War. And he never saw, he never went to Vietnam. It was all stateside. So he, he never did that. But he was in the army for a few years. So what training did he do in the army? Just the typical. He attained the rank of corporal. He wasn't special forces. He was just kind of a normal, like, you know, grunt infantry guy. 
nothing nothing too remarkable he was delving into a little bit of gambling in the army and some fights and things but nothing remarkable and he never really saw combat duty okay so not not so many skills that he could transfer over to his later work then uh no not i mean well you know actually okay a sense of discipline <laughs> because Costa Nostra is like an army. When Salvatore Maranzano created the five families, he was a Julius Caesar fanatic and he modeled them after the Roman legions. So Costa Nostra family is is very similar to an army and maybe it instilled certain discipline in him because you know you it's also it's a disciplined thing. It's not just, you know, wildness, it's you know, ordered chaos. Although we're gonna get into the stories of how he almost got whacked because he was very against the grain from the beginning and did a lot of things kind of against the order. Why did he go with the Columbos to start with? He was from Bensonhurst, and that was the predominant gang in Bensonhurst. Now, of course, in Bensonhurst, there was also Gambino, Bonanno, everything. All the families had some interest in Bensonhurst, but the predominant guy was first the Profaci family under Joe Profaci, the olive oil king. He's an old school Don from Castellamero del Golfo in Sicily, and so was Salvatore Maranzano, so was Joe Bonanno. That was the big game in town, so that's where he started. So that's where he started, but then he ends up beating up Joe's son. <laughs> yes, he was a, you know, a tough kid. He's 5'5", five five, but he was, he was very tough, and that's why they call him the bull. He went to a theater, and he got into a fight with uh, Joe Jr., Joe Colombo's son, Joe Jr. He whooped him. He molly whopped him, as it were. And so Joe Jr. went and got his older brother, Anthony Colombo, and then Sammy beat up Anthony. Now, I would later in life sit in a, a New York City lawyer's office with Anthony when we were working on the Joe Colombo story with his lawyer, Barry Slotnick, the very famous mob lawyer. And I sat down with him. We, we, ne we never got that project off the ground, but we optioned it from Barry Slotnick and Anthony. But this is way back in the day. This is Anthony at that time was a capo. This is when they were young and Joe was the boss. So he didn't know who they were necessarily. So Joe Colombo called him, called Sammy in. And this is when he was an associate with the Columbos. And he said, you beat up my sons. And he's like, yeah, I did. And, and so uh, Joe said, you must be pretty tough because my boys are tough. He said, you had my son Anthony down pretty bad. You could have kicked his head in, but you didn't. And Sammy was like, yeah, I didn't because it was only a fight. You know, I, I didn't need to do that. And he said, that's a good thing. That's a good thing you did there. And he's like, now you know they're my sons, right? And Sammy's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Joe. Because Joe was the boss, of course. That's how that incident went down. <laughs> was there any repercussions? No. I mean, that's the thing. Sammy, throughout his career, you'll see this kind of these things that he does that would you think would be dangerous but they they instill respect you know because he's he is a tough guy and that's that's the commodity right that's what makes the that's what greases the machine violence you know he had an interesting time in the colombos i mean he came in he rubbed shoulders with some notable personalities joe colombo as we mentioned also an interesting character that he ran into in a, in a more positive note for his his file as it were was carmine the snake persico he's a fascinating figure and persico uh liked sammy because sammy sammy did his first hit for the Columbos, his first murder. But he, he had taken care of some other business by beating people up and things like this. So Carmine liked him and he, he liked him a lot because he saw Sammy do a piece of work and that Sammy was a tough guy. And once again, that these Carmine Persico is probably one of the assassins of Albert Anastasia. These guys respect that. 
he got in trouble with a bank robbery. Somebody reached out to Carmine Persico and said, the bank guard, he's like, I won't testify if you give me $10,000. So Carmine loaned Sammy $10,000 and he gave it to him at three points VIG. You know, even though he likes Sammy, that's not a very favorable VIG. Generally, people who are made guys or you know, really well-regarded associates only get a 1% VIG, but he gave him 3% VIG. And so Sammy didn't have any money at the time. And he said to Carmine, he's like, what do you mean? He's like, listen, let me explain something to you. I'm bailing you out through my power and connections. Money flows up. You give me money. I don't give you money. And then so Sammy at the time was like, you know, he was like, kind of bristled at the moment but then he, it sunk in and then he realized okay and then you know of course he would join a club where he would be the beneficiary of money flowing up so it was a valuable lesson for him so why did he transfer over to the gambinos sammy's sponsor in the colombo family was shorty spiro shorty was a real heavyweight in the family sammy got into a beef with shorty spiro's brother ralph spiro ralph spiro called sammy's wife debbie and said to her on the phone that they were going to kill Sammy because Sammy was trying to have sex with another Columbo wise guy's wife. When Sammy found out that Ralph Spiro had spoken to his wife Debbie like this, Sammy flipped out and raced over to Ralph Spiro's house with a gun. Sammy was going to kill him, but Ralph wasn't home. This made things really complicated because Shorty was Sammy's sponsor in the Colombo family. So the powers that be decided that it would be better if Sammy transferred to the Gambino family. Wow. All right. So how high had he rose in the Columbos? He was an associate. He was never a made guy. The books were not open at that point. The books in Costa Nostra didn't open. The books were closed in Costa Nostra from, say, uh, 1957 to approximately 1976. Because some say 77, but some say then there's some stories. I mean, I know you're friends with Michael Francis. I believe Michael states that he was made on uh, Halloween 76. So... Basically, the books were closed. So that's, but, but he was very well known because he was so, you know, in with, he had rubbed shoulders with Colum, Joe Colombo himself and Carmine the Snake. It was thought Sammy is going to be a made guy in the Columbos, but he, his departure was necessary. So what's the mechanics of getting moved over to a different family? What does it entail? When you're even an associate, you belong to the family and the person so you go on record with certain guys so it requires like some you know some notice you know okay it's okay that sammy does this on this end and it's okay on that end so what happened with sammy is he got linked up with an old school gangster in bensonhurst who was a gambino named tato arello now tato arello was a very very old old guy kind of like a father to sammy and he was uh from the era of like albert anastasia like back in the day and he he was with anastasia heavily but then when the whole situation came down with uh, carlo gambino who was anastasia's underboss taking over tato arello went with Carlo and them. And so Sammy went to Tato first. Tato liked him right away and he became an associate with Tato Arello. And um, was he committing more homicides? Not right away, no. He was actually at that time trying to go legitimate and he had a job, a uh, very intensive kind of like a carpentry type laborer job in construction. He got set up. There was some a case that came up of something he didn't do, killing the, uh, these Dunn brothers. And so he needed money for his defense. So he quit his carpentry job and he said, I got to get into this full force. So what kind of work was he putting in? He would beat people up. He would, he would kill. You don't, you know, you don't have to kill to be inducted, but it, it's often the case, you know. But he was, he was putting in work. He was known as a killer. I mean, at that point, I don't think there was a huge body count. 
in terms of murder, but he was a guy that would beat you up and and he robbed. I mean, he they would go on robbing sprees. They call like what was it called? Like trunking, where they'd go and just go through car trunks to make his money. I think he ended up confessing to nineteen murders, but he only actually pulled the trigger on a fraction of those. Didn't he? Wasn't he the organizer of most of them? Well, yeah, and the thing is that Sammy will tell you that in a in a hit, when someone gets clipped, don't fear the guy that pulls the trigger. Fear the guy that puts the thing together, <laughs> and that was him. And so that's you know, and then I mean, I guess you fear the guy who at the very top who pushes the button, but the really dangerous guy. And this is why Sammy is a dangerous guy. He was the guy that would put them together often. Now this is later down the line because we haven't even gotten to the point where he was made yet. But yeah, so. He puts in enough work to get made. That's a big part of the book where he goes into the basement and gets the card out and the blood and all that stuff and swears the oath. He was very happy, wasn't he? He thought that was like the, the be- one of the best days of his life. Oh, yeah. You're walking on air. You're, 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 on, you're high. You're high. It's like a drug experience. He got called downstairs to a basement. At the table are the major captains, the capos, Toto Arello, his father figure, capo, the boss of the family at the time, Paul Castellano, the underboss of the family, Anilio Della Croce, Joanne Gallo, the very old consigliere. And so he, yeah, he did the whole prick your finger. I don't want to, you know, get you demonetized with the, the B word. I don't know. <laughs> he, you know, he, what dripped out of his finger, you put on a card of a saint, which, you know, was the, the, the saint of the family. And then you light it on fire and you burn it in your hands. If you betray your family, your friends, you shall burn like this saint. And Sammy at the time was so caught up in the moment that he, you're supposed to take the, the thing and go back and forth with it in your hand, but he just held it and it just, it burned and it caused like blisters on his hand. He didn't care. He was just like so like high from it. And then he was just walking on air and he went to a club and met Frankie DeChico's father, Boozy DeChico, who would, you know, later have a lot to do with, with Sammy. Frankie DeChico was a, became a really, really powerful capo and his dad Boozy was there and it was just a great moment when, you know, one guy introduces him to another guy. He's like, hey, do you know, you know Sammy? He's a friend of ours. And now he's, his, <laughs> his new life has begun. And his relationship with the boss started out well, didn't it, Big Paul? Sure, sure. Sammy was always... Now, it's interesting that, once again, we mentioned Sammy was dyslexic. But the thing about it is that, you know, Sammy's a really, really smart guy. He's, he's tough and he's brutal, but he's very, very intelligent. And he had a great interest and knowledge of the construction industry. So Paul, that was kind of a bonding thing for Paul because Paul was very, very much into construction through their control of the various unions. So Paul liked that. So he liked that Sammy was that. And Paul always said about Sammy, even though he's very, very tough and very, very brutal, you know, Paul's a racketeer. But he always said to Sammy, Sammy, I like you because you are a gangster and a racketeer. And so he, that's how they kind of bonded over that. So, yeah, Paul liked him. Plus, you know, he's capable and capable in, in, in that world means you can clip people or like, you know, once again, not necessarily pull the trigger, but you can put it together to do it correctly. He was involved in several wars in the Colombo family. The Colombo family is a very violent family. But he did some infractions and gets called to the carpet and his life you know, they're they're deciding what to do about him. What had he actually done? Well, Sammy did a lot of things differently. He didn't take any guff, even in defiance of mafia rules. Now, there's certain rules that are explained to you, getting back to the induction ceremony. You know, they don't explain them all that night. Some are explained to you later, but you don't, you know, raise your hand to another made guy. You don't get with another made guy's mother 
sister, wife, or girlfriend. And also, the thing about Cosa Nostra is that you can't kill somebody. It, the, the murder is the commodity, so it's very, very tightly controlled by the boss. You have the boss has to give his consent in order to clip someone. So I'm just kind of laying the groundwork for some of the times he bucked the system. Sammy owned a nightclub in Gravesend, which is you know near Bensonhurst, and it was a very, very, very popular nightclub. It was doing really, really well. He's making a fortune with it, and so he had he was there with his whole crew, and so a guy started to come to the club, a Czechoslovakian white dealer named Frank Folia started coming to Sammy's club. He dealt white and he had a lot of money, but he also had some kind of background and like he possibly was in some paramilitary something or other. And he was very wealthy. He had, you know, very expensive cars, a plane. He had a lot of money and a little mysterious, but we know he was a, a white dealer. And, I just got to uh, say, this is, this is pro- perhaps my favorite, nearly my favorite story about Sammy the Bull is this story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Going, keep going, it's great. So, you know, this guy was, he dealt white, but he also was a white user. So he was quite erratic and quite, you know, outrageous and crazy. And he had a party at the club. You know, he said he was going to have like 300 people, all A-list. We're going to raffle a motorcycle. I'm spending a huge amount of money on the party. And then so the party comes down and it's like, eh, there's not that many people. There's an old, you know, junky motorcycle and they have like Chinese food and they're eating it with their hands because there's no utensils. Sammy doesn't like it. You know, Sammy's like, yeah, what are you doing in my club? You know, and whatever. And, and, and meanwhile, Sammy, he doesn't tell this guy that he's connected. He's, you know, he's a, he's a made member of the Gambino family at this time. But, you know, one of the things that I've learned in my life is that if you meet someone, generally speaking, I mean, in this world of, you know, where we are right now with the internet and people cooperating and we know what's what, it's, it's one thing. But in the real world, if you meet someone that says, hi, I'm in the mafia, you pretty much know they're not in the mafia. If someone's in the mafia, they'll never say those words. You know, and I've also noticed if, if you, someone says to you, I'm rich, rich people don't say they're rich. They say they're poor. <laughs> <laughs> they cry poor mouth, you know. So that's like, so this guy, uh, Frank Folia, didn't necessarily know who Sammy was. He probably had an idea that he was connected, you know, but he didn't really know. So he's kind of getting outrageous. He had the, a deposit for the party. Sammy got so disgusted with the party that kind of blew out of control. He's like, you know what? Forget it. I don't want it. But then Folia is like, you know, he's kind of a big shot. So he's like, I want to buy the club. I'm going to buy your club for $1 million. And so Sammy, to Sammy at the time, this time in his life, a million dollars was a magical number for him. He's like, you know, you know, this is, we're talking a long time ago when a million dollars is more than it is today. Sammy's greed kind of got him in and his brother-in-law who, you know, he didn't like much was kind of talking to him. He's like, a million dollars, do it, Sammy. And he kind of later kind of blamed him a little bit for, you know, letting him go down this path. So, you know, so basically, okay, he's going to sell the club to Frank Folia for a million dollars. So they have some kind of rigmarole in terms of how to pay. At one point, Sammy and his brother-in-law go to a bank and they're going to give him the money, but they want him to sign for it. They bring these briefcases for the money, but they're like, we're not signing. That's, you know, you don't sign. And so they left. And then, so it was basically agreed that he was going to pay Sammy part of the money up front. And then he was going to pay the rest. Basically, the bottom line is it was going to be a million dollars. So that's what was happening. And, you know, Sammy doesn't like this guy, but he's like, you know what? Let me let me bounce over here with a million. We, we can open up another club. So this guy, Folia, kind of like starts taking over the club even before the sale goes through. 
and he he's he's doing some other things that are kind of you know annoying some other people. There's there's another club nearby that's owned by interests in the Genovese family. Obviously, you know, pretty much the most powerful family, arguably the, the Gambinos and the Genovese. And so Falia, because I guess he has a plane and he has access to a helicopter, he's flying a helicopter over this club with a megaphone saying, "Don't go to that club. Go to my club." These Genovese's are like, Sammy. Is this guy with you? What's going on with this? And Sammy's like, no, nah, he's not with me. And it's like, we're going to put our foot up his butt if we catch him. You know, is that okay? And Sammy's like, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know him. He's not with me. So he's he's just, he's a wild card. And Sammy's like, let's get this deal done. Let me get my Millie and, and bounce because it's it's not a good situation. He could sense it. What happens is Sammy gets to the club one day and Falia, because he has all these ideas. He wants to knock walls down. He's very grandiose, and he's going to do this. He's going to do that. Sammy gets to the club. Falia is sitting in Sammy's office behind his desk. And so, the, you know, he, he goes, Sammy goes around the club. He goes to the waitresses and checks on them. You girls okay? And they're like, we're okay, Sammy. You know, this crazy guy's up in your office. So Sammy's mad. And as he's marching upstairs, he's pissed. He's like, and he, and he comes in, and Frank's got, like, his feet up behind Sammy's desk. And Sammy's like, Frank. What are you doing here? You know, our sale didn't go through. This isn't your club. You don't have a right to be here. You don't have a right to be in my office. And, and so Frank, kind of a la Scarface, pulls out an Uzi and points it at Sammy. Sammy said at that moment, his body tensed up like a piece of steel. Like, because, you know, he's, this is serious, you know, an automatic weapon right in your face. And so then all of a sudden, Falia starts talking and talking. He thinks he is Scarface, you know, and he's got a monologue talking. And then Sammy relaxed a little bit because in Sammy's experience, there are certain people that shoot and certain people that talk. And generally the ones that shoot don't talk. So Sammy relaxed and he said, he kind of, you know, diplomatically said, Hey, Hey, Frank, listen, man, it's okay. Enjoy yourself. Put your feet up. We'll work it out, man. It's no big deal. You know, you're going to buy the club anyway. And Sammy just slowly backed out diplomatically. He, you know, his eyes grew dark at that point. He gathers, he assembles his crew about two and two, three hours later, they whack him out in the alley right by the club. They, they kill Folly in the street. Now, problem here, as I mentioned, you can't kill a guy in Cosa Nostra without permission from your boss, especially a premeditated thing. Now, if a guy pulls a gun on you and it's, you have to do it to defend your life, it's okay, but you can't have you know hours in, in between in a premeditated murder without permission from the boss. So this is a problem. This is a, this is a, 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 this is a capital crime in Cosa Nostra. So Sammy is called to the carpet. He's, and he's called in to meet with the boss, Paul Castellano. And uh, Paul, you know, meets him at, at a restaurant and Sammy goes in and, you know, Paul's there with, you know, his big bulldog, Tommy Bellotti, who's a capo, kind of a tough guy. Paul says, Sammy, I'm hearing here you have an off the record hit. And Sammy says, yeah, that's, that's what happened, Paul. And it's like, Sammy, you can't do that. And he said, Paul, this is the problem. It was well known what happened with me and this guy. And I didn't want to have a trail that led from the incident to me going to meet with you on your, your house on Toad Hill. And then I go and we whack out the guy. I was trying to protect you. You know, that's why I did it, Paul. And Paul said, Sammy, I don't care. I still, I look at this as an off the record hit. And he's like, you know, some of us, Sammy, may be armed right now and you might not leave this restaurant alive. And Sammy said to Paul, he said, Paul, 
You are my father, my boss, my representante. And you can do that if you want to. I'm not armed. You can do that. I don't think you're going to do that because I was just trying to protect you. And Paul, Paul says, he, Paul kind of laughs. And he's like, this, this crazy Sammy. This is, I mean, he's breaking the rules, but they kind of love him for it. He says, all right, Sammy. He's like, listen, I just want you to promise that you're not going to do this again. And Sammy's like, Paul, I can't promise that. I will always protect you. I can't promise I won't do it. Paul's like, oh, God, Sammy, get over here. He kisses on both cheeks. He's like, you know, you ain't going to die over this bum. And, you know, this is just, Paul loves him for it. You know, you're breaking the rules, but people, people kind of love a rule breaker. That's why we like, that's why we like gangsters, right? Was that the only time his life was on the line like that? No, there was another time later. Now we mentioned that Paul's pet was the construction industry and Sammy was very into the construction industry too. Sammy was involved in a drywall deal with a member of the family named Louis de Bono. And Louis de Bono was not much of a gangster or a street guy. He was more of a racketeer. And he basically ripped Sammy off for somewhere in the neighborhood. I believe it was like $125,000, $150,000, somewhere around there. He ripped Sammy off in this drywall deal. And so Sammy called Louie in to deal with this because you know, Sammy's not a guy to be trifled with in this way. Both made guys in the Gambino family. And so Louis de Bono comes in and he meets Sammy, but he brings with him all these like lawyers and accountants to explain to Sammy, you know, how, why he did this. And Sammy's not buying it. Sammy's like, you know, you know, and they're like, oh no, Sammy, look at these paper. This is this paperwork and that paperwork. This is fine. And Sammy, so Sammy dismisses all the lawyers and accountants and he, and it's just him and Louie. He's like, listen, you beep sucker. I will splatter your brains all over the wall. Is it okay to say that? <laughs> Sammy says, listen, you beep sucker. I'll splatter your brains all over the wall. I don't care about your lawyers and your accountants. I will kill you. And so Louis de Bono is like, whoa, whoa, Sammy, take it easy. And he just back up, backs off and, and leaves. So, okay, now Sammy has threatened a made guy. We know this is something you can't do. And threatened to kill him, not whoop his ass, you know, whoop, whoop his, not whoop his butt, but kill him. And so Sammy gets called to the carpet again to big Paul Castellano. And so he's, he's going to a restaurant to meet him or a diner or a restaurant. And he gets there. And Paul and the administration of the family aren't there. Tommy Bellotti, Paul's big bodyguard guy's there. He's like, the, the site's been changed. It's over, over at somebody's house right now. And Sammy's like, oh, man. So, you know, you know he's, he's, he's getting kind of nervous. Now, I forgot to tell you, he also, Sammy consulted with Frankie DeChico. Now, Frankie DeChico is like a big brother to Sammy. Frankie DeChico is a very, very powerful guy in the Gambino family. He's a captain, and he has a huge work crew. Now the distinction, some crews are work crews, work crews put in work. They can kill you. There's some crews that are just like more white collar, but Sammy, Frankie DeChico and Sammy too is, is a work guy. They can put in work. So he consults with Frankie DeChico, who's like a big brother to him. And he says, Frankie, he explains it. He's like, Louis de Bono ripped me off. He brings in all these accountants and lawyers. I got a little mad and I threatened to splatter his brains on the wall and I'm in trouble. I'm getting Paul called to the, the carpet by big Paul. So Frankie says, you know, because he knows Frankie's very schooled in Cosa Nostra. He's like a big brother to Sammy. He's like, bing, Sammy, I got it. You just, it's just you and him that were there. There's no witnesses. Deny that it happened. Say that it didn't happen. His word against yours. Cancel itself out. 
There's nothing you can do in the parlance of Cosa Nostra. There's no other witnesses, you know? So Sammy's like, you know what, Frankie? That's some pretty sound advice. So that's what Sammy's going to do. So then later, of course, he gets called into the carpet. And as I mentioned, it's supposed to be at a diner or a restaurant. He gets there. Tommy Bellotti, Paul Castellano's big bulldog goon is there. And he's like, the venue's been changed. The venue is now at some guy's house. And Sammy's thinking to himself, gee, I, you know, I was kind of cool with the <laughs> somewhat semi-public meeting in a restaurant. Now it's at some guy's house. I hope I get out of here. You know, he's a little nervous, you know, so he gets there and assembled there is the entire administration of the family. You've got big Paul Castellano, the boss. You've got Neil De La Croce, the underboss. You've got Joe N. Gallo, the very old man consigliere. And then you've got Louis De Bono, the guy that Sammy threatened. And then you've got Louis De Bono's capo or captain, Pat Conti. And so they're all there. And, and Sammy said he got there and Louis de Bono's at the end of the table smoking a cigar with a smirk. And he's like, <laughs> I got this guy. And so Paul says, you know, he, he goes over the charges and he says, Louis de Bono says you threatened him. He's a, he's a friend of ours. What do you have to say? And so Sammy was there and he, he, he saw Louis like <laughs> smirking across the table with this big cigar. And, and, he, and he thought to himself, you know, Sam, you know, Frankie gave him some pretty sage advice. Just just deny it. But then Sammy just saw him and he got madder and madder. And instead of that, he's like, yeah, I did do that. And I did it because this sea sucker ripped me off. And he's like, you know what, Paul? He's like, Paul, give me permission and I'll whack him out right here and now. And, and Sammy said that Paul Castellano like went white. You know, this white collar racketeer went white with the idea that there could be a hit right here now in front of him. And so all of a sudden, like it's, it's looking really bad. And all of a sudden, Neil Delacroach, the hard boiled, like Capone era underboss, tough guy, street guy, work guy. He bellows this guy here meaning Sammy, is designing his own death. But I'll tell you one thing. I listened to him, and he's telling the truth. But this other guy, and he points to Louis de Bono, he's a disgrace to our thing. So all of a sudden, Paul says, calm down, calm down, calm down, because, you know, he's, <laughs> Paul doesn't want to hit right there. <laughs> he knows he's dealing with a volatile commodity here with Sammy. And, and so he's like, he's like, everybody calm down, calm down. And because Neil De La Croce basically completely got Sammy's back because they, they're, they're the same kind of guy. They see eye to eye. They're both street guys. They're both work guys. So Paul's like, listen, listen, here's the deal. You guys are not going to work together anymore, okay? We're going to separate you. We're going to end this here today. We're going to separate you. You're not going to work together anymore. And he's like, Sammy, I want you to promise Louie right now, right here, that you won't hurt him. And he's like, Paul. I promise I won't hurt Louie. Then Paul turns to Louie and says, Louie, I want you to promise. And Sammy interrupts him and says, no, 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 Paul. That's okay. I don't think there's any worry that he could hurt me. <laughs> That's got to be up there in one of the all-time best stories as well. Yes. Absolutely. So uh, does, when does Gotti come into the picture? 
Well, at the time, Sammy was made, uh, became a, a made member before Gotti. Gotti didn't get made as early. He was under a different capo. Like Sammy and Gotti were in kind of different worlds because Sammy was over here in Bensonhurst and Gotti was over in Queens. Gotti's capo was named Charlie Wagons Fatico. And so Gotti was over there. And the way that Gotti kind of made his bones, as, as you could say, I mean, he was probably on his way to it anyway, was he, Carlo Gambino had a nephew who was kidnapped. And I mean, you know, crazy idea, you know, it's, but I mean, we know this happens. And so Carlo, it's funny with a guy like Carlo, he stated, I can't pay the ransom because if I pay the ransom on this, they're going to snatch up every niece and nephew and every kid. And I, I this is never going to end. They find out that the guy who did it was a guy named McBratney. And so John Gotti goes to a bar with a couple of guys and they kill McBratney and that's, but that, so he gets Gotti gets sent up into prison. That's kind of why he got made a little later. Gotti in prison helped a friend of Sammy's. Sammy met Gotti when they met at a club later, like early, early, when they kind of really didn't know each other at all. Sammy bought him a drink and was like, you know, showed him a lot of respect and they kind of bonded as two tough guys from very, two very different factions. Very, you know, Gotti was mostly by the, uh, by the airport in New York, like hijacking loads, whereas like Sammy was in construction and doing different things, but both tough guys, both work crews. Yeah. So Gotti, that's what he came in the picture later. And then of course he became, you know, acting capo of, of Fatico's crew and the, and he's the hold court at the Bergen hunt and fish club. Gotti started rising as we know the next. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I've got some exciting news to announce. Michael Francis is coming back to tour the UK in 2024. The remade Mantor, the Michael Francis story. Michael Francis, once named one of the 50 most significant mob bosses in the USA by Fortune magazine, and a former member of the notorious Colombo crime family, will take you deep into the world of organized crime, sharing captivating tales and insights into the Mafia's past, present, and future. Join us for an unforgettable evening with Michael Francis, the original Goodfella, as he exclusively sits down with myself, Sean Atwood. With me as the host, there's going to be a no-holes-barred exploration of Michael Francis's life, including his numerous arrests and jury trials that ultimately led to his pleading guilty to a federal racketeering charge, a 10-year prison sentence, and $15 million in restitution. You will have the unique opportunity to ask questions during an audience Q&A session, making this event a must-see for true crime enthusiasts and anyone curious about the underworld. Don't miss this explosive In Conversation with Michael Francis. Live on stage in the UK, this exclusive in-person event will be held in various locations in the UK, Ireland and Scotland. Link in the description box below this video if you want to grab yourself a ticket. Back to the podcast. Cheers. step in, in this whole story is the assassination of Paul Castellano is coming. Don Carlo Gambino, boss of the Gambino family, picked his brother-in-law and cousin, Big Paul Castellano, to succeed him, rather than Don Carlo's popular underboss, Anilio Della Croce. When Don Carlo passed away, Paul Castellano ascended to the Gambino throne. Big Paul retained Don Carlo's ban on the dealing of narcotics. When Carlo Gambino died, he created two factions of the Gambino family. It could have been Neil De La Croce, who was the boss of the more blue collar gangster street guys. But then he put his 
brother-in-law and cousin, Paul Castellano, in charge. So he kind of created the situation where you're going to have a house divided. John Gotti's brother, Gene Gotti, was a major brown dealer, along with John Gotti's best friend, Angelo Ruggiero's brother, Sal, Sal the Sphinx Ruggiero. They were major brown dealers. Now, in Cosa Nostra, there is a prohibition of the dealing of anything let alone brown or white or whatever, but they were major dealers. It's somewhat hypocritical because back in the day, all of the bosses did that same thing and most of them were arrested for it. But, and it kind of, you know, I've talked about this recently, how it's kind of a have and have not situation where, you know, these bosses are so entrenched and so powerful and so rich, they don't really need money. But these low level guys like Gotti's brother and Ruggiero, they need money. They're in the street. So they were dealing very heavily. And then this caused this situation with Paul Castellano where it came out and Paul Castellano was going to take out Gotti basically. So Gotti used that as an opportunity to say, well, it's kill or be killed. So Gotti had to put together his coup group of like, you know, revolutionaries in a coup. And he went first to Sammy. He set up a meeting with Sammy to get him on board because Sammy was very powerful. He didn't show up though. He, Angelo Ruggiero came and Sammy was like, where's John? And, and Angelo's like, oh, he's doing stuff. He's doing stuff. But you know, he's with me. We're going to take this guy out. And so he said, listen, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to Frankie DeChico, the other powerful cop of my big brother. You got a problem with that? And he's like, no, no, no. We don't have a problem with that. And I'm going to talk to Frankie about it. So basically, Sammy goes to Frankie because John Gotti needs the blessings of guys like this to pull this thing off. And so he goes to Frankie and he's like, what do we do, Frankie? And Frankie's like, ah, John's got a big ego, but he's pretty smart. He's pretty capable. You know, and he's never, he has to be boss. He's never going to, one of us can't be boss. So listen, let's make him boss. We'll do this. Okay. Let's make him boss. And then, you know, you'll be like, you know, made capo of your family and then consigliere. I'll be the underboss for now. If we don't like this in a year, we'll clip Gotti and we'll take over. And they're like, okay. So they meet up and then now, now the plot is on. To, to whack Paul Castellano. You know, once again, it's like, who's the tough guy? The tough guy is the guy who designs the hit. And Sammy's been in like several mob wars. And once again, you asked, he was in the military. Maybe some of that experience helped with that kind of situation. And so he was the guy that actually designed the hit. And more, this kind of hit is a real hit. Like, I mean, the mafia are professionals, kind of like the CIA. We're talking about when these guys clip people, they do it right. That's why it's like, you know, the, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald, you know, with a lone gunman, it's just, it's, it's very rarely on a major hit, a lone gunman, you know? And in this instance, Sammy devised a massive hit with primary shooters, backup shooters, crash cars, backup to the backup shooters, walkie talkie communication. As you know, it's legendary, took place uh, in lower Manhattan at Spark Steakhouse. And so Paul was going to meet for dinner at Spark Steakhouse. This is Christmas time when, you know, Manhattan is just packed with people. Paul goes over to his lawyer's office. He's being driven by the bulldog, Tommy Bellotti, his bulldog. And he's going to go have dinner with Frankie DeChico and a couple other guys, including Tommy Gambino, Carlo Gambino's son. And so when he gets there, all of Sammy's and Gotti's crew are set up. They've got the primary shooters. They're all wearing like Russian hats and long trench coats that look the same so that if, if someone identifies a member of the hit team, that will just kind of blur together. Oh, they kind of all look the same. They look that. And it's true. When it went down, the, the witness's statement, it's witness statements are always, the re reality is hard to kind of track sometimes. And so they get there. Paul Castellano's driving up. Now, 
John Gotti, they had the main primary shooters, backup shooters, crash cars, all that. And then Sammy and John Gotti were in a car across the street. And Sammy was the backup to the backup to the backup. And at one point, just before it's going to go down, there's a cop. And Sammy's like, you know, he's got a gun and he's realizing that anything goes wrong, everybody's going to have to get clipped. Because this is the thing is that when you play, okay, when you play the Game of Thrones, you can't lose. If you lose, you die. So when you're going after a boss, you have to hit. It's that's the one thing. If you miss a boss, you're dead. You know, so they're playing the Game of Thrones here. Sammy and, and John are across the street. Everyone's in position. All of a sudden, weirdly, Paul Castellano and Tommy Bellotti pull up right next to them. Their dome light is on. And Sammy's like, takes his gun, cocks it, and he's ready to go. And, and he's like, whoa, whoa, easy, easy. Sammy said if they had looked up, he would have had to take them out right there. But they didn't. They just moved along. And they got into position right in front of Spark Steakhouse. All of the hitters surrounded the car, took out Paul. Tommy, John Gotti, and Sammy saw the whole thing go down. They drove by slowly as they looked. They looked down on the street. Their gun. The regime has been changed. But doesn't that violate the law of the Mafia Commission? Huh. You know, of course, obviously, that's a cardinal rule because who makes the rules? The bosses. So, you know, you're going to like definitely want a rule and you're going to enforce a rule that states you can't hit a boss because that's you. I mean, that's like, you know, if you have a commission, there's, you know, a bunch of bosses, they're going to protect that. However, throughout mafia history, I mean, lest we forget, this happens a lot. You know, for instance, um, Carlo Gambino. Carlo Gambino, that's like the predecessor of Paul Castellano. He was the underboss of Albert Anastasia, the Mad Hatter of Murder Incorporated. Now, Carlo was a, you know, a very, very mild-mannered little man with a big banana nose and wore his upturned fedora. And Joe Bonanno de 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 described him as a servile, a squirrel of a man, you know. But Carlo Gambino is just always thinking he's a Sicilian. And he he had Albert Anastasia taken out. So, I mean, if you look at that, that's like, you know, that's the genesis of it. Now, Albert Anastasia, now I, don't, I won't get into the whole Neapolitan versus Sicilian thing. Albert Anastasia was Neapolitan. Carlo Gambino was Sicilian. John Gotti is Neapolitan. So, you know, there's, there's that whole thing, but we'll, we'll leave that for a different podcast. So yes, yes and no. You know, yes, of course. But once again, we see that there's rules that are capital crimes. We've seen Sammy break some. He's still standing. And so it's just, I guess everything in life is relative. And who wins in life? The bold. They're the ones who win and write history, right? Yeah, but there was a response. Was it the chin? Normally, when you do something like this, you have to get permission from the commission, right? So on the commission at this time, there is the commission of the five families of New York. There is Lucchese. There is Gambino. Now, the Lucchese and the Gambinos always go together because Gambino's son is married to Lucchese's daughter. So traditionally, they vote together. Basically, the Gambino and Lucchese vote go in together and they're the same. The Gambinos have traditionally been pretty close to the Columbos as well. Carlo Gambino basically installed Joe Colombo as boss back in the day. Then you have the Bananos, who were soon to be disgraced and booted off the commission. And then you, of course, have the Genovese family. Now, the Genovese family is the most powerful family. Now, people will argue that the Gambinos are, but it's actually the Genovese's. And the real godfather, the real tough guy, they call Paul Castellano the boss of bosses. And I've even heard Sammy refer to that. He's not the boss of bosses. 
That's not true. That's, 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 that's a misnomer. Salvatore Maranzano, when he created the five families, wanted to be boss of bosses. But when Charlie Lucky Luciano came into power after he took out Salvatore Maranzano, he said, no, I don't want to be boss of bosses. Why do let, let people have their kingdoms? I don't need that. So there is no boss of bosses. And I will argue that Chin Gigante is, has more sway than Carlo Gambino or, or Paul Castellano, rather. I'm sorry. So basically, the ire that was aroused on the commission would be Vic Amuso, boss of the Lucchese family, and his underboss, Gaspipe Casso, and then obviously Chin Gigante. Chin Gigante, who walks around Greenwich Village mumbling to himself, wearing a bathrobe and slippers, yet is absolutely brilliant. And he is the true, you know, puller of strings. And so, you know, you got these two guys that want vengeance. So, Basically, they want to take out everybody who had a hand in this. They want to take out John Gotti, chiefly. They probably want to take out Sammy, Frankie DeChico. So one night, Sammy goes to a social club, and John Gotti's supposed to be there, but John Gotti's not there. Frankie DeChico is also at this club. And someone asks Frankie, Frankie DeChico is now the underboss under Gotti. Someone asks Frankie DeChico, Sammy and Frankie are there, and someone asks Frankie, for the card to his lawyer. So Frankie says, oh, I got it in the car. Let me go to the car. So Frankie goes out to the car to get the lawyer's card. When he gets to the car, the car explodes and blows him to pieces. Sammy runs out and he said he's holding Frankie in his arm, but his body is disintegrating because he, you know, he, he, it's just, you know, he's just completely blown up. Now, it was supposed to be Gotti there. So that bomb most likely was for Gotti, but they got Frankie instead. They wanted Frankie anyway, though. Let's be honest. They probably wanted the whole administration. But so that was thought to be Chin Gigante, Gaspipe Casso, Lucchese's, and the Genovese's getting revenge for what happened. So, you know? so how did that get settled? You know, when you talk about ferocious, John Gotti was a ferocious guy. You know that. He's probably the most famous organized criminal, arguably in history. Sammy is a ferocious guy. Frankie was a ferocious guy. The Gambinos are ferocious. But the funny thing is, who's more ferocious? Like who are the ferocious afraid of? The ferocious are afraid of Chin Gigante. Vincent the Chin Gigante. Sammy and John would talk about this. They'd say, like, you know, John's like, oh yeah, you know, we know that the Chin's trying to whack us out and stuff like that. And Sammy's like, well, what do you want to do? And John's like, well, I think we should just let it lie and blah, blah, blah. It's like, what happened to the ferocious guys? I guess that's the real ferocious guy. These guys don't want to mess with him. That's the Chin. So they just let it go. Well, they, it, there was never any retribution. That was the decision because it's like, I guess, yeah, I guess it's, I don't know, maybe they're, they're uh, superegos. They knew they were wrong in some, some, some Cosinosa superego sense. I don't know. And, and do you think the Chin had decided that was enough punishment? Uh, no, no. Because he could have come after them again, couldn't he? I think that or there he... was, I think he, that was going to happen. I think that that was, that he would have. He wanted Gotti. He wanted Gotti. I mean, Gotti was ultimately responsible, culpable, right? He was the yeah. guy. He took over. So you got to get Gotti. I'm sure the Chin wanted Gotti, but, you know, then eventually Gotti would go to prison and, you know, he's a little out of reach. But I mean, you know, he was protecting himself, but he was, I would say that they were probably fearful of the Chin. And that's an understatement. All right, so last time we left off where Paul Castellano had been killed, and we're moving on to where Gotti ends up in a RICO case. 
Yes, this is Gotti's first RICO case. It's a racketeering case. He's put up on charges by a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor named Diane Giacalone. Her assistant is a guy named John Gleason that will come into play later in Gotti's career and as a, his court cases go. There's a man named Willie Boyd Johnson who's kind of comes into play here. Willie Boyd Johnson was a childhood friend of John Gotti's. Willie Boyd has an interesting backstory because it's similar to Sammy's in the sense that Willie Boyd actually, this is kind of little known, but Willie Boyd started off in the Colombo family like Sammy. Then he transferred the Colombo family and he went into the crew of Tato Arello like Sammy. He was never a made guy. Willie Boy was half, his mom was uh, Italian, Sicilian, and his father was American Indian. So Willie Boy could never be a made guy. But eventually, Willie Boy transfers and finds his way into the crew of Charlie Wagon's Fatico, who is John Gotti's capo and mentor. He becomes pretty close with John Gotti. Now, John Gotti was a little abusive with him. Willie Boy's a big, tough guy, enforcer guy. John Gotti was kind of abusive with him and referred to him, used racial slurs about his American, uh, Native American background and things like this. So Willie Boy, because he felt that he wasn't treated well when he went to prison early on, he started, he became a uh, informant and he was giving them information about John Gotti and the whole Gambino crew. And so he had been working kind of like Greg Scarpa and the Colombo family as an informant for quite some time. So Diane Giacalone went to see Willie Boy in prison during this John Gotti Rico racketeering indictment case. And she said to him, you need to take the stand against Gotti. And if you don't, I will reveal that you are an informant. The reason that she found out about this was that Willie Boy was uh, busted at one point and he had said, I'm an informant. He, he, and it got back to Diane Giacalone. And so the FBI was very, very upset with this. Giacalone, basically, Willie Boy said, you can't do this to me. If you do this to me, I will be killed. They will slaughter my family. And Diane Giacalone was quite callous about this. And she really upset the FBI because they don't usually hang informants out to, out to dry like this. Willie Boy was put into this position where he's going to be killed and his family was going to be killed. Kind of unethical. Gotti ends up at the MCC, which is the legendary Metropolitan Correction Center in New York City, where a lot of people end up in prison when they're or in jail when they're awaiting trial. And he somehow gets to Willie Boy and he says, listen, Willie Boy, you did wrong here. You did really wrong. But if you don't testify, I will not hurt you. I will not hurt your family. And Willie Boy makes Gotti swear on the soul of his dead son, Frankie. And, Willie, and, and John Gotti does swear on the soul of his dead soul, Frankie, that he will not harm Willie Boy or his family. In fact, Willie Boy doesn't testify. And the thing falls apart. And giant Diane Giacalone looks bad. And she's upset. At this point in this trial, Gotti employs the services of his lawyer, Bruce Cutler, his famous lawyer, who's like a big, tough guy. He was a former college wrestler and football player. And he's got a, you know, very grandiose style. And he, he kind of fancies himself like a, almost like a made guy. He, he kind of gets a little, he's very into Gotti, you know, kisses on both cheeks, hanging out at the rave night. And he's very dramatic in the courtroom. And he, he, he opens up the trial by taking the indictment and he takes it, you know, with a flourish and throws it in the garbage can. And he's like, that's where this belongs, you know, in the garbage. <laughs> and so, you know, <laughs> he, uh, you know, he does really well. I mean, so Bruce Cutler's a pretty, you know, seemingly seemingly an amazing lawyer and gets and wins the case and gets Gotti off. And wow, what a great lawyer. Well, in fact, what we learn is that's not really what happened. We find out that Sammy had paid off a juror, 
$60,000. And that's how, that's how Gotti won the case. And now this is the, this case is kind of important because it's the beginning of the Teflon Don legend that we come to know the Teflon Don, because you can't get anything to stick to him in terms of indictments or charges or whatever. So he gets off on this case. And what happened was uh, Sammy had fixed it for $60,000 via the Westies. The Westies are a very violent Irish gang from Hell's Kitchen in New York City. And they had come to Sammy and they, they knew a, a juror. And, you know, Sammy went to this juror and the juror wanted $120,000 to fix it. Sammy's always a, a negotiator. So he got him down to 60000 It wasn't Bruce Cutler's great lawyer skills that did it. It was actually another tampered jury, basically. That's the beginning of the legend of the Teflon Don. At this point, you know, we have the new administration. Johnny Gotti's out. Gotti's the new boss. Sammy has been elevated to the role of capo at first of uh, Tato Orello's old crew. Sammy starts to build up his presence in the construction industry. He starts all these companies and he's, you know, he's very much of a businessman. I mean, he's a gangster as we know, but he's also a racketeer businessman. So he starts, you know, really building up his presence in the construction industry getting with unions, starting consulting companies, and he's just really building, doing very well. He's basically paying John Gotti huge sums of money at this time as well. John Gotti's reaping the benefits of all of the Gambino rackets and money's pouring in. And then John Gotti, this is kind of the beginning of John Gotti as a media darling mob star, as we know. He just, he becomes like a, a celebrity, basically. Thing is, he's bringing in a ton of money. Like Gotti's bringing in a ton of money from the Gambino rackets, and he also, lest we forget, he had been reaping the benefits of Angelo Ruggiero, his brother, Sal Ruggiero, Sal the Sphinx, and John Gotti's own brother, Gene Gotti. They were heavily involved in the dealing of brown and white. So a lot of money had been rolling into John Gotti through that. Plus, he's now the beneficiary of all of the major Gambino family rackets. Huge sums of money are rolling in. However, John Gotti is basically a degenerate gambler. I mean, a huge degenerate gambler. I mean, those sums of money that we're talking about are vast, but when we talk about a big degenerate gambler, we're talking about losing up to $400,000 in one week. Now, this is a while ago. $400,000 back at this point in the late 80s and 90s was more than it is today. It's an enormous amount of money. So that's the kind of you know gambling we're talking about. Also at this time, because of the, uh, the previously mentioned uh, white and brown dealing by uh, Angelo Ruggiero, his brother, and John Gotti's brother, Jeannie, there is a case prosecuting all of those people, Sal, Angelo, Gene. And this is the fruition of the bugs that they placed in Angelo's Ruggiero's house. It started off way back in the day. They bugged a princess phone in his daughter. Ironically, her name was Princess, and it was one of those old princess telephones. They bugged it. And so Angelo thought because this bug, this wiretap was on his daughter's princess phone, that he was just free to say anything. So this is kind of the genesis back there was actually what allowed them to finally get the wiretap at Paul Castellanos. But they kept on bugging Angelo. And Angelo's nickname was Quack Quack because he had a big mouth. And he couldn't keep his mouth shut. They have this trial going on, and it's and it's not looking good. It's it's ongoing with, with the the Gaudis, the the Ruggiero brothers. And around this time, Gotti, and of course that trial, they will lose, and they will all get sentenced to fifty years in prison, which is at that point pretty 
pretty much a life sentence for all of those guys. Gotti at this point calls a commission meeting. It's interesting that Chin Giganti agrees to participate in this this meeting because you think maybe you know Chin's very upset trying to whack everybody in sight. He wouldn't want to participate, but it does happen. So Gotti meets. They meet at an apartment, and Chin's there, and. Some of the things they're talking about in terms of business are Gotti wants to promote as head of the Colombo family. Junior the Snake Persico is kind of running the Colombo family, but he's in prison. So John Gotti wants to promote Vic, little Vic Arena to be the head of the Colombo family. Gotti feels like if he gets him in the spot, he'll owe Gotti something. And then John Gotti also wants to promote Joe Messino to the head of the Bonanno family. Joe Messino is a, a powerful member of the Bonanno family who's very, very, very close with John Gotti. And in fact, just in some very recent news, Joe Messino just passed away in witness protection in Florida because Joe Messino would eventually become a boss that flipped and he was in WITSEC in Florida. He just passed away. Now, Another interesting aspect to this, to digress a little bit, is that this information was announced via Skinny Joey Merlino's podcast. Now, Skinny Joey Merlino is the current boss of the Philadelphia crime family who has recently started a YouTube channel and podcast called The Skinny. So we're kind of in uncharted territory here now. That's, that's you know, <laughs> you know the, YouTube, the YouTube thing's really blowing up. We have the current boss of the Philadelphia Mafia family with his own YouTube channel and podcast. And so he announced, and, and he's breaking news too, he announced the, that, that Joe Messino had passed away. Anyway, digress. Back to the story. So Gotti wanted to like put those people in, in, in those positions because he figured they'd owe, you know, they'd owe him. And and Chin was like a little bit like in terms of Vicarini, he's like, let's table this for the next meeting. Gotti also wanted to make some new members. So he said to Chin, he's like, you know what? I noticed Chin, your ranks are kind of thinning and there's about 40 guys that you need to make. And Chin's like, and he looked right in Gotti's eyes. Now Chin was dressed in a robe and pajamas, pajamas, a robe, and slippers, and he looks chin just, but super brilliant, looks dead in Gotti's eyes. like, you know what, John? I'll take care of my family. Don't worry about it. When we're ready to make people, we will make people. But a little bit more of a light note, John's like, oh, yeah, chin, guess what else? I made my son. I made my son, John Jr. And chin looked up at him and said, wow, John, I'm really sorry to hear that. Because Chin would never make his son. Paul Castellano didn't make his sons. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing that John Gotti was so proud of the fact that he brought his son into this. It's not something some people do. Chin was into it. So they had that meeting. And at this point, John Gotti starts whacking a lot of people. A lot of hits are happening. And Sammy is at the center of many of these hits, kind of orchestrating them. One of the hits is uh, D.B., Robert D. Bernardo. Robert D. Bernardo was one of the spiriters in the Paul Castellano hit. Robert D. Bernardo is not a, a killer or a gangster. He's more of a racketeer. He was a very, very wealthy, wealthy guy. He controlled a lot of the Gambino pornography, which was really, really big business. And then he was really big in the unions as well. John was in, in jail again. And Angelo Ruggiero calls Sammy and says, John wants DB whacked. Sammy's like, why? And, and he's like, he's been talking subversive. Sammy was th very, you know, like, eh, is this from John? He's like, yeah, it's from John. You know, Sammy found out that actually at one point, someone had said to DB, do you think uh, Angelo would make a good underboss? And DB's like, he's a gangster, but he's not, he wouldn't make a good underboss. He's not smart enough. So Angelo didn't like him. Plus Angelo owed DB a quarter of a 
a million dollars. So it's thought that who knows if there was a, you know, the telephone game, a little loss of clarity on the, the transmission. However, they ended up whacking DB. Sammy's one of Sammy's guys actually did it. And so a lot of guys getting whacked. Sammy's at the center of many of them. A little later, Willie Boy Johnson. John Gotti had sworn on the soul of his dead son, Frank, who passed away in a motorcycle accident as a boy, that he would not touch Willie Boy or his family. Well, he went back on that, and Willie Boy ended up getting shot 13 times in the head by Eddie Lino and, uh, and uh, Tommy Karate of the Bonanno family on that hit. At this point, Gotti is brought up on charges again. These charges are a little bit older. There's a guy, an official, a union official named John O'Connor, who he was in the union and he found out there was this some construction going on at a Gambino controlled restaurant. And so he sent some of his union goons in to trash the restaurant. John Gotti found out about it and said, uh, put a rocket in his pocket, you know, beat him up. So that job was handed to the Westies. And the Westies are the, you know, very bloodthirsty Irish gang from Hell's Kitchen in New York that Paul Castellano would use on a lot of off-the-record hits. The Westies ended up, they were just supposed to beat him up, hand him a really bad beating, but they ended up shooting him, and then the cops got involved, and all this happened. So John was brought up on charges again, and the legend of the Teflon Don continues. Gotti gets off. Now, once again, this was a fixed jury. They got to O'Connor via the Westies, and they explained to him that it would probably be better if he didn't testify, and O'Connor dummied up, and he's like, I don't know what happened. So the Teflon Don, nothing sticks to him again. John Gotti's riding high. Nothing can stick to him. He's becoming more and more of a celebrity. He's holding court. He used to meet at the Bergen Hunt and Fish Club in Queens, and his new status was not, that wasn't good enough for him. He needed the glitz of Manhattan. So he started meeting at the Ravenite Social Club, which was Neil De La Croce's social club in Manhattan, Little Italy. And so he starts holding court there, and he makes all the capos in the family and the administration come there. Sammy doesn't like this. Sammy's like, this is too visible. You know, this is, we're in a secret society. Cosa Nostra is a secret society. And, you know, he didn't like the fact, I mean, there was like, there was fans, there was media, you know, John Gotti was kissing everybody on camera, going in and out, everybody's kissing out front. Sammy really didn't like it. And the guys were all kind of mimicking John, wearing really expensive suits, dressing up, basically like a movie premiere every night at the Ravenite. And Sammy's like, this is Cosa Nostra. This is not, we're not celebrities. We're not movie stars. We're, we're you know, we're gangsters and racketeers. Gotti is becoming a celebrity. He's wearing $3,000 custom tailored Brioni suits. He's wearing $200 hand painted ties. And this is back in the money from late 80s, 90s. It's a lot of money. He's going out to Regime's nightclub, just flowing bottles of Cristal. And he's just, he's really getting into this role. He's referring to the, his public, his public. This is my public. I'm doing it for my public, Sammy. They love me, Sammy. Sammy thinks this guy's crazy because this isn't the way you do it. Bottom line is cops and the feds and the cops, they can get anyone they want. It's just a matter of who they decide to allocate their resources to getting. And if you are loud and in their face, putting a finger in their eye, they're going to get you. And this is, I think, Sammy's thinking. Gotti didn't see things that way. Gotti's like, this is what, what it's all about to be a gangster. So one night, Sammy is summoned to the Ravenite with Frankie Loke, the consigliere, and the FBI busts in 15 minutes later. They bust them all. They bust them all on a huge racketeering beef, and they all get taken to the MCC. Also, we, we find out about this point that when Gotti was meeting at the Ravenite Social Club, they had the club bugged and they had the surveillance was just getting heavy, heavy, heavy. Now, 
what no one knew until the point when this trial came up is that there's a point on the tapes in the Ravenite when everyone would disappear. And so the feds were kind of like, what is this? What, how, where are they going? What they determined was that John Gotti and, and Sammy and Frankie Loke were retreating to an apartment in the building above the Ravenite that was owned by a little old woman whose son had passed away. He was a Gambino family soldier. And they were up there taking all of their really, really important meetings where they didn't think it was tapped at all. So they spoke very freely. They talk, talked about everything you can imagine. And so now we learn that these tapes, everything they said, we, they, they, the feds have this information on tape with these wiretaps or you know, these, these bugs. On the tapes, Gotti can be heard talking about many murders, all kinds of things. He's the boss of the family, control of many things. Just blah, blah, blah. I mean, he's friends with Angelo Quack Quack, but he doesn't talk as much as Angelo, but he talks a lot. One thing that's kind of interesting, though, is that Gotti never says anything about the Castellano hit. In fact, he even says on tape, and the feds were a little dismayed at this, he says on tape, who knows who hit this guy, Paul Castellano? It was probably the feds or the cops. Because they made a vow never, never to repeat that. And they kind of stuck to that. But he talked about a lot of other murders. But he, he wouldn't say that for some reason. Maybe, I don't know, superstition. And so, what? unfortunately, what you also hear on these tapes is John Gotti bad-mouthing Sammy. Bad-mouthing, talking mess on him. Blaming him for a lot of these murders that John Gotti ordered. Making Sammy kind of out like to be some kind of mad dog killer. And so... Sammy is locked up and in, in prison, in addition to this, John Gotti's also kind of being a jerk. He's being really mean to them. And he also tells them, him and Sammy and Frankie Loke, Frankie Loke. Hey, we hope you're enjoying the podcast. It's a word from our sponsor, Shady Rays, and it is the season of giving. Get the perfect gift for that special somebody, yourself or both. Our friends at Shady Rays have you covered with premium polarized shades and quick swap snow goggles that won't break the bank. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers an unrivaled product that's just as good as any expensive pair we've worn. Durable frames and world-class optics for all outdoor adventures. And Jen's blonde locks aren't getting tangled. In the tangle-free nose piece, so I can put it up in my hair like this. <laughs> no catching. With an extensive array of styles and colours, you're bound to find the perfect pair of Shady Rays sunglasses. And if you're into winter sports, their quick-swap snow lenses move effortlessly between full sun to low light environments. That's not all. Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost or broken replacements. If you lose or break your pair, even on day one, they will send you a brand new pair, no questions asked. Exclusively for our listeners, Shady Rays is giving out a very merry deal for the season. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code SHAUN for 50% off two plus pairs of polarized sunglasses. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over a quarter million people. That's ShadyRays.com, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, for 50% off or two more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Link in the description box if you're watching this on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Back to the podcast. Cheers. Casio that they cannot sever from the main case and get their own representation to fight it, which would make their defense more effective. But Gotti's like, so Sammy's starting to think at this point with the talk on the tapes, he can't defend himself correctly. He's starting to think Gotti is going to portray Sammy as a mad dog and basically make him the scapegoat for everything, the fall guy. And so 
Sammy at this point is just he he's he's like this isn't this isn't Cosa Nostra. This isn't what I signed up for. And Sammy basically, because he thinks Scotty's gonna make him the scapegoat, decides to change governments. He decides to flip and he reaches out to the FBI. And they basically in the trial this time, the trial is headed by the federal prosecutor John Gleason. Now, John Gleason was an assistant to Diane Gia Cologne back when one of those cases that didn't stick. So it's it's this long kind of history with Gleason and Gotti. And basically in this one, Sammy's testifying against Gotti. Well, Gotti loses. The Teflon turns to Velcro and Gotti gets life in prison. Teflon Don now covered in Velcro. Sammy then, part of his deal that he cut, he ends up testifying against dozens, dozens and dozens of top-level Coast Nostra guys, bosses, capos, underbosses, everybody. He gives it all up. And Sammy was there. He saw it all. Ultimately, for doing this, Sammy cut himself a real sweetheart deal. He only had to do five years in prison, three years supervised release, and because he'd already done four years in prison for 19 murders, Sammy had to do one more year in prison and he was out. So Sammy enters WITSEC, the federal witness protection program, and he has some plastic surgery on his face. Now, the idea was to give him plastic surgery to change his appearance, but what Sammy did, Sammy's kind of always, you know, he's, he's kind of scheming and manipulating. The plastic surgery was more to tighten him up, make him look good. <laughs> and uh, they moved him to Arizona in the witness protection program. They gave him the name Moran, Jimmy Moran, and he starts to get into business there. He buys a big house and he starts to go into some businesses, has a restaurant that's in his wife's name. And when he's there, his son Gerard gets involved with a guy who's in a young gang called the, I believe, the Devil Dogs. His name was uh, Papa. Mike Papa. Papa. Mike Papa. Yeah. Basically, Sammy decides to get into the pill business, the disco biscuit business. <laughs> and Sammy does pretty well with this, with his reputation. Apparently, he's making up to $500,000 a week in this business, doing very well. Now, at this time in Arizona, there's a young British former stockbroker who has built his own <laughs> disco biscuit empire. Have you heard of this, this gentleman, John? <laughs> British guy. You're British. You might know him. Yeah. He had the pure white. Beige presses from Holland, not the coloured local pills that they tried to get him to uh, peddle. The good stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, and Sammy's wasn't so good, was it? When you say Sammy's, I would more describe it as Gerard's because I don't think Sammy was hip to what was going on on the street level. He was just like an investor, advisor. That was his role. I think Gerard took over with Mike Papa's ring and then a lot of people were throwing Sammy's name around. So when we interacted with them, for example, the first time I found out who they were, a uh, meeting had been brokered at Heart Five, a bar in Tucson. And I go in there and there's two guys. One's the Spaniard and one's this other big six and a half foot bodybuilder. And they took me into this back room and they cleared the sofa. 
And I said to them, you know, our pills, I've got a good reputation. Because they were asking me why I don't want to work with them. And I said, you guys have got these colored pills. And the big guy jumps off the sofa and he's like, who the F do you think you are disrespecting our pills? One call to Sammy the Bull and we can have you taken out to the desert. So that was the first time I heard it. And I didn't know if he was just blowharding or if it was legit. So that was the first time you'd ever heard that Sammy the Bull was an AZ doing these yep. kind of things? Yeah. Wow. Wow. And you thought, okay, he's just dropping the name of a former mafiosi from New York. You know, is it real? I wasn't sure because I had a lot of people working under me and they were like my protective shield, like the heads of every faction. And my thing was, if that shield got pierced, if anyone took them out, I'm next. So what happened was in the following months, one of those guys, he was like my top pill sales guy, some faction from the Gravano Enterprise enticed him to a nightclub in Scottsdale. They knocked his teeth out in the men's room and took all his pills and his money and his gun and everything else. So that was the point when we knew it was serious. So the original guy I met, the Spaniard, I was always on good terms with him. And I know when we were in Rocky Point, Puerto Penasco, those guys ran out. I don't think they knew we were bringing them in through Mexico. So we had a lot. So we started supplying them when they were down in Rocky Point. So there were times when factions of the Enterprise wanted to get us and kidnap us and do things to us. But there were other times when they were working with us. The one time that was the heaviest that I had no idea about, I was in a gay bar called a Crowbar in Central Phoenix. And hostilities must have climax because they put a bounty on me and a striptease girl at the crowbar saw me and she called it in and gerard jumps in a car armed to the teeth with his friends to come and kidnap me and my friends wild man wild woman g-dog they'd sense the atmosphere change from what must have been from when that woman called it in or something wow because i was just off my face and they were like, we need to leave. So we left. So Gerard and his arm crew just missed us. But he said they were going to hold me for ransom. And if it wasn't paid, take me out to the desert. So now, do you know what the what the bounty was? How much? No, I, I don't. Um, I do know there was a 10 grand was being offered to get my head on a silver platter. 10 Gs. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah. so you were there in the club with Wildman. Wild Man, rest in peace. And Wild Man, did, who sensed the, the atmosphere? Was it Wild Man that sensed the atmosphere? I can't remember because it's so long ago. I was with Wild Man, Wild Woman, and G-Dog. They would have been the most observant if, as to anything about to happen. Hmm. I probably had some other people with me as well, but it would have been them who would have come to me and said, let's go. Now, were, were, wild, were, were your guys, G-Dog and Wild Man, were they armed? So Wildman wasn't allowed to be armed because he was too dangerous. G-Dog had access to weapons, but he wouldn't have brought a weapon into the club. But we could have quickly got stuff. And in fact, G-Dog told me another story because G-Dog was in and out of prison. And I think it was when Gerard and his co-conspirators had first got arrested because they did get bailed out and they were still doing stuff. But the first time they got arrested, G-Dog was in jail and he overheard Gerard disrespecting the English family, the English uh, pill family. Hmm. And um, G-Dog set him straight, 
Yeah, because G-Dog's brothers were New Mexican Mafia. Oh, okay. Now, I know I know Wildman. I know Wildman. Wildman was your childhood friend. He was an enormous man, a uh, very, very dangerous man. Now, tell me a little about G-Dog. He was a uh, Latino. His, his relatives were New Mexico Mafia. All right. So, Wildman, during his first stay, he went on the rampage. It didn't last long, and he got deported and banned from America for being a menace to society. But before he left the first time, the last place he lived before he was homeless, living under a tree with a Rambo knife and a baseball bat and a striptease girl who liked to taser her female parts. <laughs> Before that happened, his last apartment was called Rancho Marietta, this giant complex in Tempe. And what had happened was he'd already destroyed or had altercations with other roommates. In the first house he was at, it ended up with a corpse on the doorstep. So this final place he was at, Rancho Marietta, Wherever he went, he would invite in all the homeless people, the street people, different mafias, gangbangers, Native American trans street-walking sex workers. It was just non-stop <laughs> party central. So wow. that's how I met G-Dog. Um, we were at an apartment in that complex because we had operations there, so we had different people in different apartments doing bits for us. And there was an apartment party, and... I was supplying the pills, G-Dog had the green and the white, and a cop walked in. I said, nobody move, I could smell the green. And went to grab his radio to call it in, I was all arrested. G-Dog wow. just whips out a gun, puts it to the cop's head, says, the only one who's not leaving is you, MF. Wow. And everyone run, and we all went off into the night. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen this, anything this heavy before in my life. You know, I was, I'm a business studies graduate, a stockbroker gone wild. I've never claimed to be a gangster. I had, gang, I had gangster writers, but this was too heavy for me. So I go into a neighboring um, apartment where a guy's selling for me, and we're all debating whether we should flush our stuff because the cops are going to be everywhere. And next thing, there's just a bang, 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 bang on the French window, and it's G-Dog. He's like, let me in. So we let him in. He schooled us right away. He's like, turn the lights off, turn the TV off. No one answer the door if anyone knocks they can't get a warrant that fast uh, you don't need to flush your shit so we decided not to flush our shit and take our chances i was still crapping it wow <laughs> next thing the front door bam 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 there's the cops but we just remained totally quiet and they went on the way i mean that area was lit up there were cops were everywhere for a while but at wow. the end of the night i took him to a property i had in phoenix and we we were playing pool did some lines and and we were playing pool and at the end of the night he said to me Sean because you and your friends protected me tonight me and my brothers have got your back and I had no idea what that meant wow. and it, it wasn't until months later I go over to the house and there's like lowrider showcase cars on the street and the brother answers got this mean face looking up at me he's like no her and he's suspicious, I can tell. But once he hears my English accent, he's like, damn, you talk funny. I guess you are from England. Come in and meet my homies. So go into the house. There's all these massive Chicano, Mexican-American gang members with the prison tattoos, the wife beat a vest, the chains, um, shorts, you know, just over the knees, slabs of white, slabs of the other thing, Breaking Bad stuff. Uh, weighing apparatus, guns everywhere. And they're all looking at me like, what the hell is he doing in here? Like they wanted to eat me. So 
I'm looking around the room. I, I see the biggest TV I've ever seen in my life, but they've also got a, another TV showing the comings and goings on the street, you know, in case they, so they can't get taken by surprise. And then I, I did a double take when I saw the TV. I'm like, hold on a minute, that's not an ornament. I've seen one of them before. Rocket propelled grenade launcher on top of the TV. RPG. Yeah. <laughs> so one of them swung a spoonful of white in my face. <sighs> snort this. And I'm looking at G-Dog. Yes, you better snort it. And that guy, Wildman ended up in the jail with that guy who, I can't say his name, but he was a hitman who was on the spree back then. But I didn't he know was, any of this. What organization was he with? New the, Mexican Mafia, La MA. Oh, La M. Oh, so we're talking about so New Mexico Mafia is is actually with the Mexican Mafia, La Emma. Yeah. So La MA, the New Mexican Mafia. There's a page on Wiki that explains it, but mm -hmm. this comes out of the prison system. This gang, right. California, Arizona, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. This isn't the Mexican Mafia. This isn't the cartel. These are Chicanos, and in the prison system, they're actually at war with the Mexicans. In Arizona, you've got the Mexican nationals at war with the Chicanos, the people who are Mexican-American, who are born in America. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the hitman, I, I snort the white, and the brother takes me into a back room, and that's how I got into business with them. I could tell there was always a lethal atmosphere, and I never wanted to stick around for very long when I went to that property. But for a couple of years while I was in business with them, and while they had my back, I had no idea who they were. And it was only a couple of years later, I'm taking G-Dog to that house one night, his brother's house, and the whole neighborhood is blacked out. The cops are guiding traffic with light ones, like sabers, like from Star Wars. And as we pulled up to the property, the brother and others who we knew were all getting led out by a federal SWAT team. And then it showed the pictures on the news that night. Oh. And, you know, these are the principles the heads of the New Mexican Mafia in Arizona says it one of the most violent, dangerous mafias at that time. They tried to assassinate the head of the Department of Corrections. Wow. They were trying to assassinate judges, cops, witnesses, you name it. So once I saw it on the news, then I finally knew who they were. Yeah. And that they were getting your back. Totally. So, so once I harbored uh, G-Dog the night he had pulled the cop pulled a gun on the cop mm -hmm. g-dog said look my brothers have got your back me and my brothers have got your back and they want to meet you so yeah i did you know get in bed with them and there were a few situations yeah i see so now g-dog was inside uh and he ran into gerard gravano and he told gerard gravano stay away from english sean what he said what he told me was that him we were with them basically Mm -hmm. Me and Wildman were with him and his people. Did you ever hear from G-Dog uh, what Gerard's uh, reaction to this was or any words? I can't remember the exact conversation. He probably told it me at the time because it's been so long. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting to me always about like when we think about the power of Cosa Nostra, I always mm -hmm. think that it's it's kind of funny if you take it's kind of fish out of water. You know, if you take the power of Cosa Nostra and then you want to try to pop up somewhere in the southwest or in, in California and you're in prison and you're dealing with these other gangsters. You want to talk about power? <laughs> There's no Cosa Nostra power out here <laughs> in the prisons, especially. Right. The great equalizer is the prison system because there was a night in Towers Jail, I think this was 2002, 2003, Gerard was back in and the guards 
we were we all had to go to court the next day so the guards chained Wildman to Gerard oh what? just to see what would happen and Wildman's looking at me like do you want me to do him in and I'm like no we need to find out because his case has progressed before ours we need to find out what he's been through what tricks the prosecutor's playing on him mm-hmm. if people are cooperating you know all the dirty tricks so we can get an idea of what's what's we're facing because it was a multi-agency investigation on the Gravano Enterprise and when they got busted that first time I was like thanks thanks for <laughs> eliminating the competition but what right. I didn't know till I read the paperwork all those resources that were after the Gravano Enterprise were put on my Enterprise oh. Now, was this this wasn't the feds. This was like the Arizona authorities, correct? So, they had a multi-agency investigation. And I think the dad did federal time. Uh, he was in the state for a bit, but the son did all state time. Mine was a multi-agency investigation, but the feds gave it to the state of Arizona. Okay, I guess so. We yeah. so so we we spent a night uh, with Wildman Chain to Girard because they wake you up for court at night and you're not in court until the next day. Wow. So we spent all night talking to him about his case. Okay, so 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 Wildman was they were they were they were talking at this point. It wasn't anything more than talk. No physical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, no. We were all, we were all talking and we just had a laugh. And um, oh, you Gerard, were with, you were there too. So it was you, yeah, Wildman, yeah, yeah. Oh wow! Because Wildman was looking at me when they first chained wow. it to, him to Gerard. Like, do you want me to do him in? And I was like, no, no. We need to talk to him and find out how things are progressing with his case in case he's got any tips for us. Right. So we spent hours with him, huh. um, pump, pumping him for information. But Gerard, he he gained a reputation for being an arm wrestler in the jail. Oh, how tall is he? A big guy. Sammy's a small guy. How tall is Gerard? He's not tall, but he's got that build like the ball. So he was very good at arm wrestling. Oh wow! Yeah, arm wrestling. Yeah. I, I found if they're fun throughout my life that the guys who are good arm wrestlers are pretty tough. Generally speaking, that's a, that's a that's a very practical kind of strength. Yeah. Um, interesting. So, and, but I mean, obviously, wild man, much larger. It's mean, <laughs> only so far. Arm wrestling skills when- are going to take you. When he died, he was six foot two and twenty nine and a half stone, and I think one stone is fourteen pounds. Wow! 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 So that was so. Then you you found out what was happening, and then of course Sammy, because Sammy's stuff happened. It was kind of the canary in the coal mine for you. It happened before your stuff, generally, right? Yep. Because Sammy, Sammy gets popped, and his crew. Well, Sammy and his crew gets popped, and Sammy gets basically you know twenty years. And serves most of it, right? I think that the two men, Gerard and Sammy, brokered some deal whereby the women wouldn't get any charges, ah. or they got off very lightly, and they took the brunt of it. Mm-hmm. And I think Sammy, if he, got, if Sammy got twenty, then Gerard probably got like twelve to fifteen, something like that. I imagine. So they they wanted they actually they took the brunt of it so that. Uh, the wife Deborah and the daughter Karen didn't get anything. Is that the case? Yeah, how it yeah. Because because Karen and Gerard were the ones who were originally in the ring with Mike Papa. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And then I don't know. Not to digress, but I don't know if you saw recently that some YouTuber, uh, a gang, uh, a Cosa Nostra YouTuber, showed showed up in Arizona and surprised Sammy 
And according to his channel, uh, Gerard went into the car and punched uh, this YouTuber in the head. <laughs> I don't know if you heard that story. <laughs> I'm not so, aware of that now. But, yeah. So, um, when, when Wild Man was on the run in Mexico, well, we we had we had uh, he was on the run from Arizona and he was in Mexico. But he said that people came sniffing around Mexico looking for him from the Gotti camp oh. to, to find information as to whether he would help them get to him, get to Sammy. The Gotti. So they went all the Gotties went all the way to Mexico to talk to Wildman about getting to Sammy in Arizona. I don't know specifically who it was, wow. but Wildman said it was the guys, you know, that Sammy had been with. They were trying to get him and they were pumping him for information. Well, it's interesting because at one point Peter Gotti, who eventually took over the family, this is John Gotti's brother, Peter Gotti, he had sent a couple of guys to Arizona, apparently, to whack Sammy. A couple of guys from Sammy's former crew, a guy named Huck and uh, another guy. And so they apparently, they didn't ever, obviously they didn't kill Sammy, but they, I mean, they were, you know, interested in that. And it's interesting. I mean, I've heard some other people say about, you know, that I guess they never got Sammy and Sammy's, I think Sammy's whole thing. I remember when he did the interview with Diane Sawyer way, way back in the day. And he said, you know, they're, they may come for me. They're probably going to come for me. He's like, but they better be good, you know, because, you know, you're talking about a guy who's a hard target as it were. Right. Yeah. So th the guys that came for him, we're about to get him and end his life, but the cops intervened just in time to save Sammy's life. Wow. Yeah, wow. and I remember that quote as well. He said, I ain't sat on some fake ass witness protection farm in Montana with a fake beard. I'm, you know, I'm me. And if they do come to my house, there's going to be a few surprises in here for them. They might get me, but right, basically right. it's going to be, there's going to be booby traps and shit. <laughs> that's the thing i mean that's the thing about about murder is that it's like you know it's all fun and games to plan it but you've got to go do it and if you're talking about a guy that's as seasoned as sammy it's it, it ain't gonna be easy <laughs> you know? no no he was a champion chess player as well i believe sammy because i spoke to people wow. yeah i had a i had a cellmate called long island who'd been in supermax and in supermax you have like uh you make your own chess set out of like paper or whatever and you you put numbers and letters on the board and if you want to play with someone upstairs you shout the moves to each other and on, on your respective boards you make the moves so wow. he said he used he used to play chess against sammy um under those circumstances and sammy was really good interesting well i mean sammy's i mean as we've talked about sammy's a he's an intelligent guy I mean, you know, he ran major businesses, major businessman on many levels, very smart guy. And I mean, of course, you know, he had in his youth this, he had dyslexia and it's, it's, it's amazing that he overcame that. When they would play chess, did they just shout through the jail or did they talk through the toilets or? Yeah, they just usually shout through the front of the cell to, if, if, it's trying, if you're trying to get upstairs. I know what you're talking about. There's people who communicate through vents, air conditioning vents, swamp cooler vents, and people who communicate through toilets uh, structures as well. I've seen all that. And what about yeah. kites? Kites. Right. So in Supermax, when I came to Supermax, 
uh, the first time and I looked out through the window of the cell, the plexiglass, as it was getting later in the day, I couldn't believe my eyes. It looked like there was poltergeists because like envelope was just floating up in the air like this. Things were like sliding across the floor. <laughs> and wow. what it is, you know, people strip blankets, towels, whatever, get string out of them. Um, a typical weight might be like toothpaste thing folded over a few times, tight to the end. Slide your weight out under your door is a standard one. A neighbor slides their weight out under the door and you get them entangled. And then when someone pulls it in, you've got a direct line to that cell. But they do it upstairs to downstairs and everything. So as they're passing all this stuff, it's, it's quite a sight to behold. Interesting, interesting. The cells are alive. With the sound yeah, absolutely of yeah <laughs> so sammy i mean he he i guess sammy eventually gets out when he's 72 years old and he'll be on parole for the rest of his life then he decided to start a youtube channel and he's done quite well with this well he's a natural raconteur and i read on the boss when i was in the prison it was quite in high demand and he's got incredible stories, like the stories you've told us on this podcast. It's just absolutely gripping, isn't it? It's proper, like... There was an old-school Bonanno crime family associate that I was friends with, two Tonys, serving 140-plus years for whacking people. He left bodies from Arizona to Alaska. And he said, Sean, these films, like The Godfather and Casino... They're just actors. They're actors. They're guys playing the life we've let, lived. And Sammy the Bull, you know, he certainly lived at the top of that life. Oh, yeah. He's a, he, he is a really good storyteller, too. I must say that he, he's he got a good memory. And he's, and he's as we know, he's, he's a smart guy. He's an articulate guy. So he's, it's fun to hear it from the horse's mouth. Underboss is a great book uh, written by the great Peter Moss, who wrote the book Serpico, you know, made into the Al Pacino movie. And... That's that's one of the be- I think that's one of the better ones. You know, he's he's a a, a real a real writer. There's a lot, a lot of Costa Nostra books that are like, eh, but that that's a, that's definitely one of the good ones. And then, so what about what about your story? How did how did your story progress? Can you give us the bullet points on that? Um, what do you mean? How did it progress? Well, you were at at this point. You you know you were in jail. In in, in prison in in state prison. Yeah. So I was in Sheriff Joe Arpaio's jail. Mm. for 26 months wow that's the worst you can be in any institution i think because he was hardcore i mean nat geo who did my locked up abroad episode they researched it and i think 57 people died in that jail around the time i was there over a five-year period guards are murdering mentally ill prisoners they murdered a blind prisoner people can google this brian crenshaw scott norberg and I was fighting my case for that length of time. Then I did the balance in the Arizona Department of Corrections. But in the jail, everyone's coming in and out constantly. People don't know what they're going to get. So they're all going crazy because of the anticipation anxiety. In the prison system, everybody's settled. Everybody knows everybody. So the gangs have got it locked down for the trade of the contraband, whereby they don't want violence and riots because that, causes lockdowns and it stops the flow of the white and the other substances but in the jail it's just mayhem everyone's there was there was a riot there there was you know the neo-nazi Aryan brotherhood prison gang decide who lives and dies if you're a white guy the black gang is the mau mau 
You've got the Chicanos, the Mexican Nationals. They're the four major gangs. The Native Americans were a, a minority. Um, but yeah, it was always popping off in Sheriff Joe Arpaio's jail. That's get used to the heads heads getting smashed against toilets, bodies getting thrown around. But it did me a lot of good because I, it forced me to grow up as a person, forced me to mature, and my writing started getting smuggled out of uh, the jail in 2004. And that's what that was my first internet presence was this blog, John's Jail Journal. So my journey through the jail is documented in real time, timestamped to this day online if people want to check it out. John, J-O-N, John's Jail Journal. And then wow. the YouTube channel came in 2007 when I got released. So we started the first prison blog and the first prison YouTube channel. That's amazing. Yeah, and then I, I had to jump up there because my, I forgot to plug the, the computer. And it was about to die. Sorry. About that's all right. No worries. No worries. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's amazing because, I mean, you're a guy who, you know, you, you got into this world and – you know, but you're you're more you know you're not you're not a thug you're not a gangster you're an intelligent guy you're an educated guy so it's interesting that you can come out of this and you can give us a more articulate kind of explanation of what went what went down than a lot of people which is just kind of amazing. It was like I was picked up by an invisible hand and put in that jail because I started just documenting everything, writing it all down. So I became the voice for these people who couldn't articulate it to the outside world. And the blog became a bridge to the outside world for the prisoners because I started to write about their stories. And then, you know, we didn't have access to the internet back then, but my parents would print out all the comments on the blog and mail them in. It was like Christmas, all the prisoners were reading them. And then they started to get books sent to them and people would give them, put money on their books and stuff like that. And things like that go a long way in prison because two Tony said to me, look, if you're looking for a gift, my new book, Sit Downs with Gangsters, is available worldwide on Amazon. We've interviewed over a thousand people now, and we selected 10 of the hardest-hitting stories to go in this book. Each chapter features the story of one of our podcast guests. Those stories are Shane Taylor, Knife Maniac's Redemption, John Elite, Mafia Hitman for the Gambino Crime Family, Joey Barnett, 35 years in UK prison, Ian Blink McDonald, £6 million bank robber, Chet Sandu, Asian smuggler in Spanish Supermax, John Lawson, the hit team commander, David Macmillan, international smuggler's tie death row prison escape, John Abbott, San Quentin prison shootout and escape, Michael Francis, Colombo crime family capo portrayed in Goodfellas. And Wildman, English enforcer in Arizona prison. Link in description box on YouTube, available worldwide on Amazon. Also, my next book, Untouchable Jimmy Savile, is getting published in December 2023. So check that out as well. It will be available worldwide on Amazon. Thank you for listening. Cheers. I just thought I was going to spend the rest of my life in here. I never thought some school teacher out of Singapore was going to be asking me questions about my mafia life. This is so cool. Yeah. Now, did you, when you were inside, did you have to hook up with a gang? Did you have to link up with a gang where you were approached by the, the white? The, if you're white, generally the, the, the Nazi type gangs will want you to join. Were you, did you have to do that? Were you approached? How did that work? Okay, so to join a gang, you've got to murder someone to be a full member. So there's not many actual members. But whatever race you are, you come under the control of that gang. So the neo-Nazi Aryan Brotherhood, as soon as I went in right away, they come up to me, you know, what are your charges? 
and they see your charges, see that you're not, you know, you're not one of those adults attracted to kids, that kind of thing, because it's KOS for them. Even drive-by shootings, women and kids get hit, you're going to get a beatdown, SOS, smash on site. But they found out quite quickly that Wildman was with me as well, because when, even though we had a do-not house together, we arrived at the jail together, and there was, I think 13 was the original group of co-defendants, half of them female, half of them male. So the females are getting off the van first, and this is the arrivals intake, Madison Street Jail, 2002, May 16, around them. You know, you can imagine the new arrestees, drunk people, people high, gangbangers, people have been tasered by the cops. They're a rowdy bunch of fellas, and they see all these women getting off a van, and they turn around, and they were like, woo, and, you know, yelling things at them, obscenities. Wildman's on the van watching this. Now, I know when Wildman's going to do something because he's got red dots in his head telling him to hurt people. He had that since he was a kid. Mm. You know, at school, when that started, he picked teach, school teachers up and put them in dumpsters and things like that. So he's on the van, and when, he, when he's going to do something, he has one eyebrow that just goes all the way up. The other one stays completely flat. Wow. That's that's when his red dots are kicking in. And I know, and I'm looking, I can see the eyebrow going up, but his face is completely calm. Wild woman, his partner, gets out, and they start yelling at her, you know, get your fingers out, that kind of thing. So he's like, now, he's like, right. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit. So he's on the van, getting out of the van, redneck guards yelling at him to step down. He won't step down. At this point in time... He's got um, like a Viking's beard. He's been up for days on the white that you smoke and the white that makes you go fast, the, the Breaking Bad stuff. <laughs> and he's, he's, he's all chained up. And he just stops at the top step and the guards yell him to get down. He won't get down. And he just tilts his head back. And he goes, you lot! Disrespecting our women! <laughs> I'm going to be in there in a minute with all of you lot. I'll have, any of, I'll have any of you if you don't shut the fuck up now. You think I won't? And he just widens his eyes, puts his head back, and he goes... Wow. And they, uh, believe me, they all shut up. They all shut up. This is like some yeah. Viking stuff. This is this isn't like typical like southwestern jail stuff. This is like a Viking from like you know <laughs> centuries ago, you know, thrust into the scene, right? Oh, he loved it. He, he would relax when there was just mayhem around him. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Well, rest in peace, wild man. Right? I mean, you guys were close since you were kids, right? Yeah, you know, I've I've got my little baby son here. He's almost a month old. Ziggy. So he's, he's Ziggy, but his middle name is Wilder. Oh, after Wild Man? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. That's lovely. Yeah, nice. Thank nice. you. Yeah, yeah. Well, then, the, the, that, the, your story, I mean, I guess now, you know, you've gotten your story out there, and now you're the hardest working man on YouTube. You've, I think you have about, what, five <laughs> five live shows a week? I don't see anybody on YouTube doing as many shows as you. I see, you know, I, I sit here at my, my, my house and record, like, a couple things here and there, but I see you on there, everything, covering things, and 800,000 subs. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, but I want to credit my team, man, honestly. I've got like 20 people, I think, working on the channel, six co-hosts. Wow. My partner started out as one of my co-hosts. So, yeah, I'm blessed to have such good people um, working with me. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. And then yeah. uh, Sammy the Bull, you know, you and Sammy the Bull have existed in 
the same realm may may exist in another realm again someday. Both well, we did we, we did a, we did a, sh a documentary. It wasn't an hour long. I think it was with I don't know if it was Nat Geo or Vice. It was how he busted the bull. So it was my story and his story, but there's a far more comprehensive documentary. I think it's going to be at least 90 minutes long coming out. I can't say the network. Like, I told my mom some people were going to come to the house to film her and my dad, and she thought two or three people would show up. There was trucks, like traffic had to be stopped. This is a massive production. So they filmed my family, Wildman's cousin. They've gone out to Arizona, filmed Sammy, filmed Sammy's family. They filmed my detectives... And um, mm. the guy who worked for me, who got his teeth knocked out by the Gra the Gravano faction, they filmed him as well, my top sales guy. So there's going to be a lot of voices in this documentary that I've never spoke before. It's going to be really fascinating. And they've told us, it was supposed to be August, but they've told us now it's going to be the new year. New year. Okay, that's going to be amazing. Yeah. Can't wait to see that. Yeah. That's great. That's great. The future's bright. You know, you've got your... Your, your son, you've got everything going on. Well, thank you, Billy. And, you know, what got you doing all this stuff? I'm a storyteller. I'm a writer and storyteller. I just, I love these stories. I, I'm, I'm working on my own projects relating to this, but I just love the reality of it because I take everything from reality. And uh, I just, ever since I was a kid, I've been into Greek mythology and La Cosa Nostra. La Cosa Nostra, not La Cosa Nostra. It's a misnomer. You know, some people some people mm -hmm. still say La Cosa Nostra, but Cosa Nostra means our thing. La Cosa Nostra means the our thing. And I don't know, it was kind of a, de a devised by the FBI. It's not it's not the right way to say it. But I just I've gotten into it. It's just it's it's fascinating these stories. I guess it's a uh, you know, we it's it's archetypal. There's the stories that are like gangster heroes almost. And that's what, you know, we love these stories, the hero's journey. And these guys are kind of anti-heroes. And in our society, I think sometimes the powers that be come to a point where it's people are disillusioned and corruption's rampant. And maybe we need anti-hero stories, archetypes in our in our lives. What's your favorite story from Greek mythology then? I like both Apollo and Dion Dionysius, you know, so that's kind of those the dichotomy of that, the Apollonian versus the Dionysian. I was always kind of drawn to the Dionysian, but I, I kind of like the Apollonian. So are you a fan of Nietzsche as well then? Because he wrote a lot about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And also Joseph Campbell. The hero's journey and you know he he articulated that i don't know if you've ever seen it read any of his stuff or seen any of his things i mean he's joseph campbell is the ultimate dinner guest because he's he's got this massive knowledge of mythology and religion and one topic leads to the other and it can just be nine hours easily he did this uh wow. there's a really good series by the journalist bill moyers that sat down with him i believe it's around nine hours long and they're just like i mean one thing leads to another and he talks about the commonality in things such as um you know for instance like when christianity took over a lot of the artisans created things with you know the pay the greek or the roman gods and that's how they kind of created things so they had to kind of retool that so a lot of things you'll see from that is as joseph campbell will explain they took the cult of apollo and the figure of apollo is this bearded young man and that's like jesus they they kind of like put him in apollo's place so there's a lot of like crossover with the apollonian and the, the figure of jesus and it's interesting that these things that Campbell just points out the commonalities and how, like, you know, you know, the, the phoenix rose from the ashes, 
the, the, the firebird, the phoenix, in the same amount of time that Jesus rose from the dead. These are kind of like, you know, ancient. They started off as more simplistic natural myths, and they just kind of evolved. But there's there's a great deal of commonality in them. And it's who knows? Is it nature or is it nurture? Is this something that we've created or is this part of our being that we've projected? I don't know. Yeah, I love all that stuff. So where are you going to go with the Mafia next? Roy DeMeo, Murder Machine, that was a popular one. Oh, yeah, Roy DeMeo's crew. I mean, that was, you know, bloodthirsty. I mean, talk about, we could talk about that guy, but we don't want to get you demonetized because <laughs> that's real gruesome stuff, man. You know, that, that guy was a, he was a hitter. I mean, you know, Sammy knew him well, too. Well, what I do with my channel is tell stories. I'm about to be dropping something that kind of relates to this. I'm going to do a really big deep dive into the hit on Paul Castellano, kind of like really analyzing almost like, you know, multimedia in the way that like, movie jfk kind of handled the jfk assassination but i'm, I'm working on a, a novel too uh and i'm also working on a true story something pretty big that's coming along which i'll tell you off you know I'm, i kind of keep things a little close to the vest until they come to fruition but i've been given some information about something that really happened that's going to kind of blow the doors off some stuff and you know give us some new information about very very popular myths in uh, the mafia I interviewed a guy this year called Kevin Marr, who was a wheelman for Roy DeMeo. They went out with some YouTubers and diving stuff to where he'd run these cars off into the river for hmm. DeMeo. They went out there last month and they found remains. In the cars? At the bottom of the river. Because the car the disintegrated. Trunk, the, the, car? the car had disintegrated. It had been that long. There was just, it was just pieces. Right. Yeah. Well, Roy DeMeo, Roy DeMeo had a huge auto theft ring and making huge amounts of money shipping them overseas. Also dealing white, dealing this, dealing that. He was tight with Paul Castellano and he did a lot of murders for Paul. And, you know, Paul accepted the money and that's kind of one of the, you know, predicates that Paul eventually got busted for. And uh, Roy was an interesting figure, a bloodthirsty figure. I wonder if those remains were in the disintegrated trunks of the cars because that's where Roy finally, ironically, ended up in the trunk of his car. Oh, wow. That's usually yeah, because Kevin, who got rid of the cars, he said the smell was coming from the trunk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he had a... There's a, there's a, there's a, million, a million stories in New York City in, in regard to that, right? There's a million players, a million stories, and we could go on and on. And it's a, it's the kind of thing we could just talk about endlessly. It's, and it's fascinating. It's, it's wonderful. And I love talking about it. I love, I love experiencing it. I love researching it. And I love sitting down with these people that have, have heard the story. And it's, it's interesting because there's certain people that have the real deal story. We know that Sammy has the real deal story. There's receipts to prove it. But then, you know, in this age, we're living with a lot of people that I think there's a, in this genre, there's just, even with the, the, even within the genre in terms of really good journalists and writers that research it and have that, it's still, there's a lot of inaccuracies that are inherent because it's such a secret society. And so there's conventional ways to confirm things such as court records, FBI files, New York Times articles, but still, that's often not enough. And there's still things that are wrong. And then nowadays on YouTube, we have a, a kind of a proliferation of these guys who, I don't know, man. And you know, for instance, like there's a lot of guys that are just, they say this, they say that. I don't believe it really. And for instance, of course, the movie, the, the book, uh, I Heard You Paint Houses. And then the, the film that was based on it called The Irishman made as a $80 million Marty Scorsese movie starring... Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci, we know that that guy, all that stuff is lies. 
all of it. Like he, this guy claims to have provided the guns in the Kennedy assassination. He claims to have whacked out crazy Joey Gallo. He claims to have obviously killed Jimmy Hoffa. Now this guy says he killed everybody. Now I'm what is next? I think he's going to say that he assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand to start <laughs> World War One. You know, it's like well, you know, it's like he killed everybody, and this guy didn't kill anyone and none of those people it's all lies and it's it's interesting at one point like if you googled that you will hear like who killed jimmy hoffa you will hear frank sheeran's name it's it's funny that google it's you know that lies can go so far i mean you know i guess there's if you make an 80 million dollar marty scorsese movie starring robert de niro al pacino and uh joe pesci that's like you know what is the sum of a man in our society, generally speaking, what defines a man is the, the major motion picture or major television event about their life. Mm-hmm. That is what decides it. Not historians, not the media. That's usually what we remember most. And it's, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. So that's kind of a thing that I, a hobby of mine is trying to deliver the real deal, the truth, because I think that that's a very hard to find commodity. There's a few guys doing this but not many many are just like kind of subscribe to this bs and you know play into these kind of fake people i don't know it's interesting well you do you do it with pizzazz definitely so viewers watching this let us know what you thought in the comments if you'd like to see billy back talking about roy de mayo and getting us demonetized um <laughs> let us know let us know in the comments about that as well and billy huge thank you for doing this let the viewers know where they can find and support your work please you can find Crimestack at crimestack.com or on YouTube. It's YouTube slash Crimestack. The other socials are in the description. I'm going to be putting out a lot, a lot more interesting videos on Costa Nostra, and I'm, I'm sure I'll be back here talking with Sean, a uh, big fan of his work. And yeah, check it out, and there'll be a lot of good things coming. But it's been a pleasure, Sean, as always. Touche, my friend. Take care. Uh... <laughs>